0: The news continues. Let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight.
1: Anderson, thank you. Good to see you. And I am Laura Coates. And welcome to CNN Tonight. You know, the big headline tonight is President Biden's clarion call for congressional action on voting rights. This, of course, hundreds of miles away from the U.S. Capitol, which has been a big point of contention for many voting rights advocates who chose not to stand beside him in Georgia today. Now they say they want to see action, not just talk. And many are wondering if this conversation is coming in too little, too late, even though we're not yet a year into the Biden presidency. You'll hear about more on that issue in just a moment. Still, the president, a self-proclaimed creature of the Senate, delivered his loudest call yet for the Senate to change its rules on the filibuster in order to get two stalled voting rights Mm -hmm. bills passed. He says he's tired of being quiet. This after apparently having quiet conversations for months with members of Congress who are holding up voting reform.
2: I'm tired of being quiet. Sadly, the United States Senate, designed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, has been rendered a shell of its former self. We must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. We have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this.
1: And ironically, tired is exactly what some of his staunchest supporters now seem to be feeling. Some, I would add, in his own party are growing fatigued and voicing frustration that Biden hasn't done more to get these critical pieces of legislation he just referenced through. The Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, especially members of the African-American community who, if you recall, were promised this after his election—
2: The African-American community stood up again for me. You always have my back, and I'll have yours.
1: Now, Biden said that he would have the backs of black voters who had his back back in 2020. But when it comes to voting rights, did he push them to the back burner? I mean, it's no secret that more and more states, at least 19 states, have enacted 34 new laws since the election of 2020. All of which make it harder to vote, particularly if you're a voter of color. That's why members of Georgia's voting rights groups refused to attend today's speech in Atlanta, fearing that they might be exploited and used as part of a photo op. Now, President Biden did visit the crypt of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with Vice President Kamala Harris before going to the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church, where King preached and delivered his remarks to a consortium of historically black colleges and universities. Prominent civil rights leaders like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, they were there. But noticeably absent was Georgia's voting rights super warrior, Stacey Abrams, who interestingly enough cited a a scheduling conflict. She's the former Democratic candidate for governor and now another governor candidate in Georgia, who was instrumental in not only exposing discriminatory voting practices in Georgia, but also helping to turn out the black vote for Biden in her state of Georgia. Now the president, he downplayed any tension that might be there or inferred from her absence, telling reporters that he spoke to Abrams this very morning, that they're on the quote, same page and everything is fine. But why exactly would she turn down an opportunity like this? I am wondering, was that a scheduling conflict or was she herself conflicted about standing beside the president of the United States? And if so, what message does that send to him, to members of Congress and the Georgia electorate? Now, Abrams, she did put out tweets thanking President Biden for, quote, refusing to relent until the work of protecting voting rights is finished. And she also welcomed him back to Georgia. She also did mention that they spoke by phone, as President Biden said, and she reaffirmed their, quote, shared commitment to the American project of freedom and democracy. I wonder, was that reactive or instructive on her part? You know, Biden, for his part, is trying to fight through the blowback for his decision to wait, frankly, this long to give a speech of this caliber and strength on the right to vote nearly one year into his presidency. But let's be clear, this is not just about one man or even the speech of one president. I mean, look at the screen. The president doesn't have the votes to get the Freedom to Vote Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed in a 50-50 Senate. I mean, all 50 Republicans, I repeat, all 50 Republicans are united against enacting these bills and two Democratic senators are with those Republicans when it comes to changing rules on the filibuster to help get them over the finish line. Both Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, they said they oppose changes to the 60-vote threshold to pass legislation and, well, frankly, Senator Manchin dug in on that very position just today.
3: Yeah, uh, The filibuster is what makes the Senate hopefully work when it's supposed to work. We need some good rules changes and we can do that together. But you change the rules with two-thirds of the people that are present. So it's Democrats and Republicans changing the rules to make the place work better. Getting rid of Felthouse does not make it work better.
1: Hmm. So what can Biden do now? I mean, how can he deliver on his promises to those who he says delivered for him and did? And what about the promises of democracy? And will all this inaction or the perception of it have consequences for him and his party in the midterms and even beyond? He's already said he wants to run for re-election. And the question is, would it discourage some of the people in his own party from turning out to vote? Joining me now is a voting rights champion who didn't attend the president's speech today. Ensay Ufad is the CEO of the New Georgia Project, which was founded, by the way, by Stacey Abrams. Why? Well, to defend the right to vote. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Nice to see you, Ensay.
4: Thank you. Nice to see you, Laura.
1: You know, I have to ask you, because there's a lot of questions swirling around the decision not to actually attend the speech. And for many, and I think you've expressed the same point, that it was the thought of just hearing the very things you already know to be true, the importance of voting rights, the reason to fortify and protect. Did the president express something today that encouraged you in any way?
4: Yes, in fact, he did. Um, I think that their presence was encouraging, right? I also think that hearing him forcefully say that we need a carve out, that we need to get rid of the filibuster so that we can pass voting rights is actually really encouraging to hear as well. Um, And to hear them say that we need to pass the For the People Act, we need to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Mm -hmm. Act and that we need to pass those things now. Those are things that we've been saying for the entire year. Uh, the entire time um, that he's been president, um, and like our our demand uh, has not changed. Uh, and so, what we are looking for is yes, like the speech is important; it's lovely. We're happy to hear it. He hit the right notes, and we are also looking for um, a path forward to getting this legislation passed, or some real talk with the American people to say that bipartisanship is not an option in this moment because this current version of the Republican Party is not interested in governing, that they have aligned themselves with the Americans who showed up in January 6th with a failed murder plot to kill the vice president and to try to interfere with the Electoral College vote. I think that that is the last piece that we're trying to hear, how do we get this bill passed, these
1: bills passed. And say on that point, of course, it's curious because as much as the president spoke about these issues and you found it encouraging that he had the presence to be there, is it discouraging that you chose not to in terms of voters who are looking towards the president of the United States? And, you know, we're almost a year into the presidency and I do wonder to play devil's advocate here. I do wonder and say what message it sends if there is the perception among voters who were told, look. All you had to do is turn out to secure the Democratic majority, come out in record numbers. You got the majority in the House, the Senate, and, of course, in the White House. If you are perceived as throwing up your hands that you think it's all bluster, does that disincentivize the engagement for people, do you think, later on?
4: Um, it does, but I also don't think that that's what's happening right now, right? Okay. So the legislative session started in Georgia yesterday, and the Republicans, the Georgia Republicans, showed up to work for the first day of, of the first day of the legislature with a plan to continue the attacks on our elections infrastructure. Now their new ambition is to completely get rid of drop boxes, right? And vote by mail and drop boxes was a cre- a key component to having the elevated turnout that we had in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic um, with 30,000 brand new voting machines uh, that Georgians voted on for the first time uh, with no paper trail, um, that having an opportunity to vote by mail um, made sure that people were, uh, that there was a paper trail so that, you know, we could have receipts um, but also so that people could manage their exposure to the virus. And now the Republicans are attacking that. Lincoln County, uh, one of our black belt counties, where they're trying to close seven out of the eight polling locations. And we're supporting organizers on the ground who are collecting signatures to try to block that. Uh, 159 counties in Georgia, and several Republicans are trying to unceremoniously and unilaterally remove black county elected officials uh, from their from duty. Uh, and so. We're in a crisis moment. And so I can. Be, I think that when we talk to the 600,000 young people and people of color that we've registered to vote, that we they understand what we are doing. They understand that we are working to sustain the demand for urgent and immediate action to protect voting rights for all Americans. This isn't just a Georgia issue. This isn't just a red state issue. This is a problem nationally. You mentioned 19 states have passed anti-voting legislation, 48. Eight states have introduced nearly 400 anti-voting bills. This and I suspect is a- and
1: say there's not, that's not going to be the end of it. I mean, when you talk about that, the numbers alone, I say to myself, is going to be more. I wonder what you make of this, though, with Senator Mitch McConnell having this statement earlier today when he was talking about, well, is there some need to change the filibuster the way that the president articulated today? Listen to what he says.
0: The Senate isn't broken and doesn't need fixing.
1: I mean... The Senate's not, that wasn't the question he was asked, of course, and you and I are both cocking our head at the same time and say, thinking to ourselves, well, there's something broken about the idea that even the concept of voting rights has become partisan. There's obviously clearly things happening and it's in broad daylight. What do you say to that?
4: Not only is the Senate broken,
1: he broke it. (laughs) right? (laughs) If you want to be direct about it and say yes, go ahead. absolutely.
4: He broke it. I refuse to pretend like he is a good actor in this moment, that they are uh, statesmen or patriots or people who care about protecting American democracy. Everything that they have done from the, what, over 100 members of Congress who, uh, you know, signed a letter and refused to try to certify the elections in 2020 to, you know, January 6th deniers, deny uh, apologists for the insurrectionists, uh, again to, you know, basically saying that there's nothing going to move on the Biden agenda. I absolutely want to see Build Back Better become the law of the land. We absolutely want to see um, a path forward for immigration reform. There are things that the American people want to see that were promised by the president on the campaign trail and we are trying to flank him to con- create and sustain the demand for this these bills, these laws that we have to have.
1: And Saif, thank you and everything you just mentioned of course depends on people having access to speak their minds representatively through the polls. Thank you so much for your time. Nice talking to you. I want to bring in a different perspective here on all this issue as well because my next guest, well he calls the Biden voting rights agenda, quote, an attempt to weaken election security under the guise of voting rights. Georgia's Republican Senator, Secretary of State claims Democrats are trying to rig the rules, and he's the official who was on the other end of that infamous Trump, can you find me about 11,000 votes call? lock tackle with. Brad Raffensperger up ahead. You know, our last guest talked about the impatience, but Georgia's Republican governor, he refused to wait and hear what the president said about voting rights before offering his own take and analysis.
3: Make no mistake. Georgia is ground zero for the Biden-Harris assault on election integrity, as well as attempts to federalize everything from how hardworking Georgians run their businesses to what our kids are taught in school to how we run elections.
1: You know, Brian Kemp is right about one thing. Georgia, it is ground zero, but not maybe for the reasons he's spoke talking about. I mean, it started not with today's visit, but maybe it was ground zero beginning with this call. Do you remember? All
3: I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state.
1: Every time I hear that number and the precision of the request it makes me raise my eyebrow and wonder what's next. You know, the former president's lies about Georgia, it didn't stop when the state passed a controversial voting law last year. And frankly, it's fueling a wave of new bills and prompting primary challenges for Republicans like my next guest, frankly, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, whose new book is called Integrity Counts. Thank you for being with me tonight. I see your book there, and I love the play on words. I'll dig into that as well, Secretary, on that very issue because you know, what has been your reaction to this idea that the Biden administration, you say, is somehow the one that is attacking voting rights and the integrity of our elections? It's interesting because, as you know, you yourself have been accused of being complicit in the same. What's your take now?
5: Well, if I look at, in fact, your last speaker talked about uh, wanting Americans to be able to vote. And so today I asked for United States constitutional amendment that only American citizens vote in our elections. The vast majority of Americans believe that only Americans should be voting in our elections. And they're now voting in city elections in New York, San Francisco, and even San Jose is looking at that. Another one that has strong bipartisan support is having photo ID. That is actually supported by majorities in both parties, both political parties and every single demographic group. 80% of all Americans support photo ID. And yet, HR1, HR4 would do away with photo ID and also have same-day registration, and that in effect would end up with people that could vote multiple times and also doing away with the citizenship check. It also yeah. really makes it difficult to update voter rolls. I also think that we should have a, a national ban on ballot harvesting. The only person that should ever t- touch your absentee ballot is you, the voter, or the election official once they and the election worker when they receive your ballot. That's it.
1: I understand the litany of things you've just presented, and it's been echoed by other people as well. One of the big flaws that has been addressed and criticized about those lists is the idea that many of them, well, one with the idea of who's unable to vote in a place like Georgia, it's already part of the laws that are existing. And then the rest seem to be, in many respects, a codified legislative initiative in search of an actual problem. And I want to get to right there, because this idea of each of the things you raised really is premised on the idea that these were all significant problems that were so prevalent, so pervasive that they needed to actually be corrected. In thinking about that litany, are you afraid that the, by per, by promoting these principles, you actually are instilling more fear about the integrity of our elections?
5: There's not another there's not a single other country in the rest of the world that allows non-citizen to vote in their elections. We would be an outlier be the only country in the world that allows non-citizens to vote in their elections. And then photo ID, we've had that for in-person voting for 10 years. And now we've incorporated that for absentee voting. And they've been using that in Minnesota for over 10 years. And that's a Democrat state. So it's a it's a nonpartisan, bipartisan, it's an objective measure that you can identify the voters and it helps give people confidence in the process. And so it is about confidence, it's about accessibility, it's about security. And then there's a tension there. I understand that. I think Georgia struck the proper balance. We now have 17 days of early voting. That's more than anything they have in New York, New Jersey, or Delaware.
1: Now you're talking about Minnesota. You're also talking about my home state as well. And there's many states across the country that have been looking at these issues. And the problem for voter ID laws, and I want you to address this, people's criticism of voter ID is not on the concept that they are somehow against the idea of those who are supposed to be voting or you are who you say you are. It's about the devil being in the details, about the availability of of having access to the actual IDs, the type of IDs that are permitted versus those that are taken away, the ideas that which count and which do not. And your book, by the way, is called Integrity Counts. And I do wonder, for all those things, there is an element happening in Georgia right now where the power is being removed from officials like yourself in the ability to oversee fully these elections. Do you see a problem with that based on the issues that you have raised? I mean, if you believe truly, genuinely that these are indeed our problems, do you think that it's incumbent upon an elected official as opposed to one who is not to oversee these elections?
5: Well, as it relates to photo ID, we've had that in place with Motor Voter over five years now. And most people are being registered to vote through Department of Driver Services. So it has photo ID, also a robust citizenship check. And 98.5% of all of our registered voters have a driver's license number. And then if they have been registered a long time ago, We'll probably have their social security number and that gets you up to 99%. But we also uh, accept 12 to 14 other forms of identification and we'll give you a free ID just like we do for in-person voting. So it's not been an issue. In fact, studies, peer-reviewed studies have shown photo ID does not decrease turnout.
1: But I, I just want I know we're out of time here, but you don't have a problem with your own power being removed to oversee elections? I mean, I know you t- mentioned on voter that's, ID, that's, but what about the latter issue?
5: Well... I've obviously been very clear that I believe that the Secretary of State should be the chair of the state election board. But be that as it may, I do believe that having an accountability measure now for the very first time, that when you have a county that can't run an election well, and Fulton County hasn't run elections well since 1993, long before I was here, this is 30 years that they've been having issues in Fulton County. We finally have a process, it's a thoughtful process of a bipartisan review panel that can look at their Procedures and say, are you going to improve it, and what's your plan of action? And if they can't, then you can replace that board. The new board can hire a new election director. They had this issue in Florida years ago. Governor Scott fired one of the election directors. Governor DeSantis fired another. You don't hear about Palm Beach County and Broward County election issues anymore. I think accountability is always a good thing. If you don't check Little Johnny's homework, Little Johnny may not do his homework, and that's what we're talking about doing: is checking people's homework, making sure they do the job well. We have 159 counties. And we can't have one county holding up the, you know, the whole rest of the state waiting for results.
1: Well, Fulton County is waiting on the results of one of their um, prosecutorial investigations. We'll see, um, really, whether Johnny was a good little boy or a bad little boy when it comes to that one, won't we? Secretary Brad Raffensperger, thank you so much for your time tonight. Nice talking to you. (laughs) Thank you. We're going to turn now to COVID and fireworks on Capitol Hill as Dr. Fauci grows furious at his biggest critics.
3: So your desire to take You're down people... incorrect as usual, Senator. You no. are incorrect almost everything you Well, said. no, you deny, you deny, right. but the emails tell the truth of this. No.
1: And that, by the way, was the polite part compared with what Fauci called another Republican senator today. But the frustration over Omicron may be leaving some pro-vaccine Americans, having him sound more like right-wing anti-vaxxers. We'll talk about it with a former Biden COVID advisor next. You know, as top health experts were grilled on Capitol Hill today, it was Dr. Anthony Fauci's fiery exchanges with Republican senators that, well, they stole the show. Now, Dr. Fauci, as you know, you've seen it. He's butted heads with Rand Paul before, many times, frankly. But today, it was the way he fired back that really caught our attention.
3: I think in usual fashion... Senator, you are distorting everything about me. Senator, you no. are incorrect almost everything you well, said. Well, no, you deny, you deny, right. but the emails
0: tell the truth of
3: it privately. You keep, the, you keep distorting you? the truth. It is, it Did is stunning you ta- how Did you, do you do talk to? You keep coming back to personal attacks on me that have absolutely no relevance to reality. Do you think anybody has had more influence let, over let our me response finish. to this
2: than you have? Do you Madam think it's a great Chair, success?
3: Can Do you think it's a great success what's happened so far? What happens when he gets out and accuses me of things that are completely untrue is that all of a sudden that kindles the crazies out there and I have life, threats upon my life, harassment of my family and my children with obscene phone calls because people are lying about me. It makes a difference because as some of you may know, just about three or four weeks ago on December 21st, a person was arrested who was on their way from Sacramento to Washington DC at a speed stop in Iowa. And they asked, the police asked him where he was going and he was going to Washington DC to kill Dr. Fauci. And they found in his car an AR-15 and multiple magazines of ammunition because he thinks that maybe I'm killing people. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website, and you see fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says contribute here. You can do $5, $10, $20, $100. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain.
1: Unbelievable. What the experience of Dr. Fauci has been, but there was more because there was this moment, a hot mic moment where Dr. Fauci lashed out at Senator Roger Marshall. I'm going to listen carefully here.
5: You see things before members of Congress would see what? him, so that there's a an air of appearance that that maybe some shenanigans are going on. You know, I don't think that that's. I assume that that's Senator, not the case. Senator, what I are you talking it's about? It's not the case.
3: My, but, my financial disclosures are public knowledge and have been so, you are getting amazingly wrong information. So uh, uh, what I, are I, you I cannot find about? them. Our office cannot find them. Where would they be if
5: they're public knowledge? Sen- Sen- Where? Sen-
3: it is totally accessible to you if you want it. For the public. Is it accessible to the, to the public? public? Okay. To the public. Great. We look, forward to, totally Sen- well, we look forward to reviewing it. You
4: totally incorrect. we look forward to reviewing it. Senator Marshall, Dr. Fauci has answered you. It is public information, and he's happy to give it to you if you would ask.
3: What a moron. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
1: So clearly, he's had quite enough of all the shenanigans. And for what it's worth, Senator Marshall is a former physician himself. That makes it all the more stunning, frankly, to think about why Dr. Fauci is being attacked by his colleagues and what has he done wrong is really the question that he himself is asking right now. I want to bring in another doctor, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, a former member of then-president-elect Biden's COVID advisory board. Dr. Emanuel, you clearly see the frustration. You hear Dr. Fauci express the frustration, the anger, frankly, and the sadness involved in his being attacked based on misinformation, what is your reaction to seeing him frustrated in this way? Do you share that frustration?
0: Yeah, I think it's terrible. Tony Fauci is a man of incredible integrity, devoted to the country uh, and devoted to the American public's health. And uh, the Senate, unfortunately, uh, first of all, doesn't treat him with respect. And second of all, uh, we have an epidemic, uh, pandemic, that's actually caused over 800 and uh, 30,000 deaths, uh, o- almost 62 million people infected. And we're arguing about uh, you know various emails that have nothing to do with trying to solve problems. And point of fact, uh, the email Ron Paul was referring to was not authored by Tony Fauci. And the group that was referred to it has been totally, thoroughly discredited, as uh, was suggested in the email. Um, so, I'm not sure what gets accomplished here, but certainly helping solve this pandemic is not one of them.
1: I mean, it's obviously counterproductive, right? It's also dangerous as well. And as you articulated, Dr. Emanuel, it's not as if there have not been more than 800,000 deaths in this country. It's not as if we don't have issues surrounding vaccine diplomacy. And for every new letter in the Greek alphabet, there's one more waiting to be named on a variant in this point. And we know this is all happening. And But yet there are still a lot of unanswered questions. And you have seen, obviously, the frustration that has been wielded in the direction of a Dr. Fauci, of a Dr. Wolensky Walensky as well, because there is this notion of confusion, confusing messaging. Do you think that's truly the case, that the CDC is somehow falling short in messaging? Or do you think that it's perhaps a little bit of a frustration with the fact that the pandemic has yet to end, and people don't want to hear it anymore?
0: Look, we're all frustrated by the pandemic. It's now been two years. Um, our lives have been upended taking it out on government officials who are working tirelessly. You know, I've been in their position. I was in the government from 2009 to 2011. You're working 6 a.m. to 12 to try to solve serious, serious problems. And then to have people attack you and attack your person, you're uh, declaring conflicts of interest, uh, false things. That's horrible. Um, It is the case that We didn't anticipate the development of Delta and then Omicron, and we need a new strategy. And that is quite clear. But the basic message of the administration, we've got to get people vaccinated. uh, We've got to get uh, people wearing good quality masks. Those are really been the same. And the problem is that people have been arguing against it, like Rand Paul, um, and that is not helping address and solve this pandemic.
1: In many ways, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, you're almost wondering what happened to that phrase, we're all in it together. It seems to be pitting people more and more, nearly three years in. Dr. Emanuel, thank you for your time as always. I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, I also wonder, you know, in the different areas that we've been focusing on and thinking about over time, issues surrounding criminal justice reform. I mean, is there an instance when it can go too far? New York's police commissioner and Manhattan DA have each been on the job for, what, less than two weeks at this point? But they're already clashing over a new strategy that police say puts them and the public in danger. Could suspects resist arrest with no charges in some cases? We have a policing veteran here to discuss next and one of my favorites in just a moment. So first came the disagreement. Then came a crucial meeting. Today, the brand new district attorney in Manhattan had a sit down with the new NYPD commissioner after he got some harsh blowback for his prosecution reforms. DA Alvin Bragg said that he will only prosecute serious crime, meaning he would no longer prosecute citizens for minor and nonviolent infractions like trespassing or traffic violations and resisting arrest and even misdemeanor marijuana violations. Police Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell said the policy would put officers and the public in danger. She and Brad released a joint statement after their meeting, which in part says it was agreed that police and prosecutors would weigh the individual facts and circumstances of each case with a view towards justice and work together to keep New Yorkers safe. Joining me now to discuss former Philadelphia Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey. He was also chief of police in Washington, D.C. as well. Commissioner Ramsey, always nice to see you and get your expertise. I can't think of a better person than you to talk about this because um, the prosecutor's priorities here obviously got under the skin of the police commissioner. What is your take? Is that the right call to essentially prioritize the nonviolent crimes? Is that a, a good call to make if you're the police commissioner?
2: Well, first of all, I'm glad they sat down and talked because you have to have open lines of communication between the DA and the police commissioner. Uh, You know, you can't just butt heads on everything. You're going to disagree on a few things, obviously, but you do need to have open lines of communication. So they've both been in office for a short period of time. Having a meeting early on to kind of iron a few things out, I think is very important to try to get if not on the same page, at least in the same book, you know, so that you can at least move forward. And uh, I understand uh, some of what the DA is trying to do, find alternatives to incarceration, focus on the more violent crimes. But I also think it's a mistake when prosecutors, before they've even had a chance to evaluate an individual case, Just make these kinds of statements, we're no longer going to prosecute this, we're no longer going to prosecute that. Each case has to stand on its own merits, and they need to review these cases before they make those kinds of, of, of comments, because I think it just does a disservice to everyone involved, victims of crime, police officers, everybody.
1: Now, look, you know, I've now been a federal going? prosecutor. I know, of course, you've been a commissioner and a well-respected one at that. And we make decisions as prosecutors, right, based on not only the facts in the case, obviously our burden, but also, you know, the volume of cases is going to impact the right. ability to allocate resources. You know that you got to prioritize certain cases in every case, particularly the nonviolent ones, when you're weighing whether to pursue those or use your resource on the violent ones. it can be the right decision in some instances to prioritize, not ignore, but prioritize. But what about the safety of officers here? That's a a concern that this commissioner has raised. If you do not have these charges, like resisting arrest, for example, which we know has been the cause for concern for Fourth Amendment violations for many trials just this year alone, do you have concern that that will somehow incentivize violence towards police officers? Is that the crux of her issue?
2: I think it could. I think she's legitimately concerned about that. I would be, too. I think you have to scrutinize resisting cases very carefully to make sure they're legitimate. Uh, Now that officers wear body cameras, and I review a lot of use of force cases now uh, in my current role as a consultant, uh, and the body cameras make a huge difference. Believe me, you can tell whether or not You know, the officer used excessive force. Did they try to de-escalate? All those kinds of things. So certainly looking at them carefully. But you can't say you're not going to prosecute these cases. You have to look at each one individually, because what you don't want to do is create an environment where people think it's okay to resist arrest that arrest is still going to take place. But what you're going to wind up with is maybe higher levels of force being used to bring a person under control. You'll have more instances where, you know, officers will be involved in struggles with individuals who are taken into custody. And so you have to take these matters seriously. And I think words matter. and You have to just be careful on how you say things. Uh, I, I don't think his intention is to harm anyone, but he has to be careful how he presents these things so that he doesn't give the wrong impression.
1: Yeah, it's the idea of priorities versus inviting behavior, right? Prioritizing prosecution. But, you know, I I wonder, part of me when I saw this wonder, just given the volume of cases we've seen on officer-involved shootings and excessive use of force, I wondered a part of knowing full well that, you know, I write about this in my book. I mean, just thinking about the overwhelming and disproportionate impact of these cases on black and brown communities was a part of this more thinking of the idea of, look, Resisting arrest cases can often be pretextual, and it's perceived by the public as pretextual in some instances, as some way to trump up charges against someone. C- could that be part of the calculus in terms of assuring that there is greater trust between the community and the police who should have this symbiotic relationship?
2: It could be. But also, again, you know, you have to look at these cases individually. I don't have a problem with very close scrutiny when it comes to resisting cases in any case for that matter. But I think when you start making statements or start acting as if all cases of resisting arrest are somehow just trumped up and they didn't need to happen, it wasn't legitimate on the part of the uh, officer, I think is a mistake as well. I mean, I've been involved in a lot of arrests. Not everybody wants to go to jail. And so you wind up with a struggle. You know, some struggles take longer than other struggles, but uh, they do take place. So you just have to look at these cases individually and make a judgment based on what you see. Now that we have body-worn cameras, the facts in the case, all those things combine and then make a decision as to whether or not you're going to charge.
1: Commissioner Ramsey, thank you for your time and expertise as always. I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, Something still on the top of my mind on the fight over voting rights in America. Something I think that should blow all of our minds as this battle comes to the forefront again. I'll make my case about it next. A big win for Georgia last night, the Bulldogs defeated Alabama's Crimson Tide. It's Georgia's first national title in football in 41 years. But look, it's not the only reason Georgia has been on all of our minds. Not just the mind of President Biden, who delivered a strong speech today in support of fortifying voting rights. It was on the mind of his predecessor, if only to find 11,000 votes. And the mind of President Biden's Attorney General, Merrick Garland, whose Justice Department has sued the state for its alleged discriminatory voting laws. And the mind of Senator Mitch McConnell, who is trying to reclaim the title of majority leader, a title he lost from the Georgia Senate runoff elections, well, they painted the state blue. It's on the mind of Democrats and Republicans alike as they debate the merits and viability of a bill that bears the name of the late Representative John Lewis, himself a son of Georgia. And Georgia is on the minds of political strategists weighing whether the choice of voting rights champion and second-time gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, her choice not to attend President Biden's speech today, if it wasn't about a scheduling conflict, but perhaps a decision to follow the blueprint of Virginia governor-elect Glenn Youngkin, who distanced himself from an unpopular president. But there's another blueprint that should be top of mind— the one that has guided far too many elected officials in their ability to undermine needed legislation that protects the rights of voters of color. I'm talking about the filibuster. Now, I'm I'm not going to debate you here whether it was first introduced for racist reasons. I'll leave it to historians to debate Aaron Burr's intentions. But one cannot ignore that in its modern form and application, the Senate rule that people argue is meant to protect a political minority's rights— Senators in the minority, that is. It's been used as a weapon against the protection of the rights of racial minorities. And it's been successfully deployed again and again to defeat civil rights bills, including anti-lynching bills. And yes, it has been used by Democrats and Republicans alike, and for perfectly legitimate reasons, sometimes separate and apart from any issues of race whatsoever. And frankly, it still can be. But maintaining a blanket rule to protect elected officials already in power at the expense of the power lists, well, that poses a threat to a government that is by design of, for, and by the people. And yes, you can call the big lie out for what it is, a lie. Because we do have free and fair elections, and there is no widespread voter fraud. But we must still acknowledge that our elections will only continue to be free and fair if voting rights are preserved. Now, you're never guaranteed to vote for the winner, but you ought to have the chance to participate and fully. And we're told in the Senate that the votes just aren't there, that there's no appetite for eliminating the filibuster. And yet there has certainly been an appetite for carving out exceptions to it. I mean, for Supreme Court nominees and uh, reconciliation. In the past few weeks alone, we've seen the Senate create a carve-out when it comes to raising the debt ceiling after Yellen sounded the alarm at the thought of the U.S. defaulting on its debt. Well then, we can also surely carve out an exception at the thought of our country defaulting on its own promise of democracy, right? I mean, Georgia is on our minds, but it should blow all of our minds that we could ever be weak on protecting voting rights and still think our democracy could ever be strong. I'll chat with Don next. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow. Don Lemon tonight. Touch with the great Don Lemon right now.
3: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that.